Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome to this week's installment of the Gateworld Podcast. You're listening to episode number 20, and today David and I are talking about Brainstorm, last week's new episode of Stargate Atlantis. We also have a preview of our upcoming interview with Stargate SG-1 guest star Peter Fleming, and the latest Stargate news, site features, and listener mail. It's Thanksgiving in the United States, and if you're not sure what to be thankful for this week, just remember, the GateWorld Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me once again this week is my partner in crime, Mr. David Reed. David, how are you doing? Good evening. I am well. How are you? It's good to finally get... The big fat 2-0? We made the big fat 2-0. Yes, definitely. We were uh, excited to have David Hewlett on to talk with us about Brainstorm today, but unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, he was not able to make it, so we hope to have him on the podcast again in the future. Maybe we'll see an interview with him in the next few weeks. Yeah, and those who are jonesing for a David Hewlett fix can go look for our podcast on the Shrine earlier this season. What are your Thanksgiving plans? I have zero Thanksgiving plans. I am. You're uh, not going anywhere. I'm writing a paper, and you're Good going for home. You. I am going home to St. Louis tomorrow night. Is going to be 19 degrees. It is currently 75 where I'm at right now. At mm. 9 o'clock at night, that's going to be a major shift. Do you even own a coat? I have them all here, as a matter of fact, and I'm, I have to pack several of them up. So I'm, I'm going to have to remind myself to wear jeans before I board the airplane tomorrow. Otherwise, I'm going to have to change in the terminal in St. Louis because mm-hmm. it's going to be cold. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for November 25th, 2008. In a surprising bit of news this week, Ronan Dex actor Jason Momoa is recovering after being attacked at a Hollywood cafe. He underwent reconstructive surgery and received 140 stitches to his face after a 21-year-old man cracked him across the face with a beer glass during an argument. Jason is reportedly doing well in his recovery, and his assailant will be arraigned on December 10th. He faces up to seven years in prison. I think this is the first bit of news that actually sounds like regular newspaper news that we've done in a long time. Yeah, we usually don't cover the actors' personal lives, but this one was in the Los Angeles Times and is is a pretty significant story. Actually, Jason was scheduled to appear at uh, the Burbank Convention this past weekend, and he made it. He sure did. Let's go, go, Jason. He's apparently recovering very well. Ratings are in for The Prodigal, the November 7th episode that saw the return of Michael in Stargate Atlantis. The episode earned a 1.2 rating on Friday night, staying even with the two previous episodes. Ghost Hunters led the Sci-Fi Channel for the week, while Sanctuary turned in a 1.5 rating. Wow. I remember the good old days when we reported Stargate Atlantis was once again on the top of the pile for leading the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, I wrote that news story a lot of times when it would start with... Stargate is once again at the top of the ratings. There are a couple of big updates at GateWorld this week on Stargate Universe. The first batch comes from writer-producer Joseph Malazzi, who has been blogging about how the show is progressing through the pre-production stage. The two-hour premiere episode from Brad Wright and Robert Cooper now looks like it may be a three-hour premiere. Meanwhile, the rest of the Atlanta staff is back and spinning stories for the new show's first season, including Joe Malazzi, Paul Mully, Martin Garrow, Carl Binder, and Alan McCullough. Malazzi also said that the entire first season of Universe has threads running through each episode 
that make it feel more like one big 20-parter. He said that the premise of the show is more intimate and thus necessitates a more intimate form of storytelling. Also this week we received new audition pages for many of the show's main characters. These may or may not be actual scenes from the premiere, but they offer some interesting hints at the early character dynamics and how some familiar ancient technology might be used to keep in touch with Earth. If you're the spoiling kind, find out more now on the website. What do you think about a three-hour premiere? I'm kind of interested to see if they are going to air it like a two-hour premiere and then have part three followed up the next week, or if they're going to air it all one night as a giant event and blow three of those 20 hours all in one night, or what. Mm -hmm. I really like the statement that the first season is starting to feel like a 20-parter. Because I like the thought that the show is going to be more arc-based. Yeah, I think they're finally figuring out that that's the way that the television is going. But I, I gotta say, I'm disappointed to see all these old names on the writing list. I was really hoping to see two or three new faces on the list. Two or three fresh new faces. Maybe one of them being a woman. Yeah, yeah, me too. I really hope that they bring some more, some fresh blood in. Because, I mean, I know that this industry is all about loyalty, you know, and if you have someone who does do the job well, um, why try and damage it by getting someone else? But I, I think it's so vitally important to get fresh blood. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for the fact that Stargate has so much backstory and so much mythology, and it's it's great to have writers who know that really well. I think it remains to be seen just what these first episodes look like if if the show really quickly starts to feel the same or mm -hmm. if it if it really feels fresh and new if the same writers mm -hmm. can do fresh and new in in a, a very different kind of storytelling then i don't mind and finally michael shanks returns to the sci-fi channel next month in a new original movie the lost treasure of the grand canyon michael of course played daniel jackson in stargate sg1 and he'll don the archaeologist's hat again as dr jacob thane in the film the movie also stars shannon doherty and Martu Factor J.R. Bourne. Look for it on Sci-Fi on Saturday, December the 20th. Gateworld Features. Gateworld's new interview with Dan Shea is now available. Dan played Sergeant Siler for 10 years on Stargate SG-1 and also served as stunt coordinator and Richard Dean Anderson's double. In our six-minute video interview, we talked with Dan about how he got into the stunt business and what brought him into the Stargate franchise and also how he wound up in front of the camera as Sly Siler. Look for it now at GateWorld.net. And our next interview coming later this week is with frequent SG-1 guest star Peter Fleming. Peter played the NID agent Malcolm Barrett on the show, appearing in such episodes as Smoke and Mirrors, Resurrection, and Insiders. He also did Atlantis. In our interview, Peter talks about reprising the role for six years on two different programs. Here's a preview for GateWorld podcast listeners. How did your audition for Barrett come about? Was it a typical audition or was there something special about it? <laughs> yeah, I remember. It was just a, a two-line audition for a possible recurring role uh -huh. um, for uh, Man in Black. He wasn't, uh, I don't think he was Agent Barrett at that point. He was, uh, could have been, I, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, I think he was. The breakdown said Men in Black? Men in Black or Man in Black, I think, you know. But, okay. But it was... You know, it was one of those things where I had done a number of guest star roles up until that point, and it uh -huh. was just like a few lines, you know, uh -huh. on the audition. So, you know, my agent says, "Well, you know, it's Carol Kelsey, it's it's Deloise, it's the whole SG one, you know." And you, you I think I was on there once before. I, I can't remember if I was, but you know, you know, go in. It's a possible recurring, and and uh, so you know, just just go in and do it. It's, like, well, it's a couple lines, Richard. You know, I, I don't know, do it. Just go, just go. So, I'm glad I went. Watch for GateWorld's complete interview with Peter Fleming later this week.
This was the third interview that we did in Vancouver earlier this April, and we're finally getting to it. it mm-hmm. It's a great one, in my opinion, but we've we've just really been waiting for the right time to stick it. I remember it was pretty early on in our trip, and we had some trouble finding a good venue to shoot in, because this was a video interview. Exactly. Yeah, I wanted like a high balcony overlooking the bay where the cruise ships were, but uh, no such luck. So we filmed in a restaurant. Yeah, he was a cool guy to hang out with. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing this one finished. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic today, of course, is Brainstorm, last Friday's new episode of Stargate Atlantis. This is episode 16. It's a pretty atypical episode. We get to see Atlantis and Shepard and Ronan at the very beginning, but we never see Taylor or Woolsey, and we, we get to Earth very, very quickly, and then it's just Earth and Rodney and Keller the whole episode. What did you think of the fact that this is... It, it doesn't feel like a Stargate Atlantis episode in many ways, does it? Yeah, um, I have reservations when it comes to that. The show is called Stargate Atlantis, so it needs to feature Atlantis and needs to feature a Stargate. And everyone already knows how um, I, I think the Stargate is very important, and when it doesn't appear or doesn't get used, I kind of get frustrated, even though they did use it to to yeah. get home. I knew nothing about the episode going in except that Bill Nye was going to be in it, because mm-hmm. I was raised on Bill Nye, the science guy, and Star Trek for a long time. So that was really exciting going in. I knew that Martin was directing and writing it, and I know what a good director he is because I've seen his film YPF, and uh, yeah, that was his, that was very good directorially. Stargate directorial debut, though. Exactly. I had my ups and downs I, I, with with this episode. There were some really funny elements about it. There were some really humorous elements about it, some tender elements that I enjoyed. You know, because it was such an atypical episode, at least in its setting and in the number of characters that were involved, it... That was kind of a hurdle for me to get past. You know, I had to watch it a second time. I knew what it was going in. I'd, I'd read the spoilers and I'd read the casting sides, and I knew for the most part what the episode was. But but even still, it kind of surprised me how almost un-Stargate it was, with, with the exception of the fact that Rodney and Jennifer are characters that we know very well, and, and we use the, the space-time bridge, which has been featured in a number of episodes over the last couple of years. Uh, I really had to work hard to get over the fact that it was so atypical. And I, to be honest, I have not ever really been a fan of, of Earth-based episodes. In Atlantis specifically, or SG-1 as well? In in both shows. Um, and I'm trying to think of some in the past. It's really hard to, to pick on. I mean, there's... Yeah, for Atlantis, it, I think of episodes like uh, Outsiders with Shepard last year. I've only seen that episode once. There's uh, the the writers do a good job of adding that Stargate twist. In that case, there was a replicator loose on Earth uh, that that ties it into the the very Stargatey mythology. Um, but here, that tie I think was a little looser. The the use of Rodney's bridge research was was a little mm-hmm. bit thinner of a connection thread. I enjoyed it more the second time I watched it because I watched it much more in terms of Rodney. I watched it in terms of, this is an episode that establishes more about Rodney's background and his relationship within his professional academic community, and it establishes his relationship with Jennifer and where that's going. So w- watching it as a Rodney episode kind of helps me to get past how kind of un it is. Yeah, it did those two things really well, and they, they were both aspects that I really enjoyed. Um, I think it's interesting how how much this show has has been pulling on the concept of 
bridging realities. I mean, the zero-point module was obviously introduced in SG-1 Season 7 Lost City, and that really has that element in it. And then you've got Season 2's Trinity with Project Arcturus, and that's all about bridging realities. And that carried into Season 3 with McKay and Mrs. Miller, and that was about Jeannie and Rodney's proof of bridging realities. And now Uh we've got it again in Season 5. And at this point, we know that it's basically just bad news. I was surprised at how cynical the uh, scientific community is portrayed in this episode. I uh, was expecting Rodney to stand out like a sore thumb because he's retreated into military work. So I assumed that they would portray the scientific community as much more polite and all of them together would just not like Rodney because he's just not, he just wasn't a nice guy back then and that's why he left and then he comes back in and we find that they're they're yes happy that he's been gone this entire time but not snippy with one another you know um and that's one of the things that I'd really like to talk with Bill Nye about if if we do get a chance to talk with them is how does this compare to real life you know is mm-hmm. this is this portrayal accurate of the scientific community yeah you know um, that that exactly right there you put your finger on one of my biggest beefs with this episode i had a real problem with how the the academic physics community was portrayed and i know you've got bill nye and you've got neil degrasse tyson in there and you you kind of want to play it light and you know they're they're ogling over keller and they're making snide remarks about rodney um you kind of want to play that for humor and and bill nye kind of works in that direction but it felt really juvenile and petty to me. It felt more like McKay was going back to a high school reunion, like yeah. like Mitchell in Bounty. Uh, and this was not Rodney going back to his high school reunion. This was this is the cutting edge physics community on Earth. And to have that sort of response, to have these guys behaving in that sort of way and and using some of the vernacular they were using. It, it seems it seems silly and petty to me. I can kind of see that, but in a, in a lot of ways, this is kind of like a high school reunion for him. He is going back. Rodney is going back to his roots, and they all talk about back in the eighties when uh, when they're chewing on him. When when uh, when he would say, "I was just about to think of that idea," or "I'm working on that right now," you know, and that is a lot of uh, what Rodney is. But this episode ends with Rodney for the first time in my recollection proving himself right where yes they are really petty and everything that he says you know norm- normally Rodney's completely off he doesn't perceive other people correctly he doesn't accept what they're saying to him or how they're behaving to him as as the actual reasons he sees that they're they're like begrudging him or he says yeah. well mean- there must be some other reason you know why he's doing this but when Keller asks him or Keller says to him, your friend's being really good to you, taking on a private jet and, and you know, burying the hatchet. And Rodney's like, in my back, he's exactly right. Malcolm Tunney, is do- that's exactly what he's doing. He may think he's not, but that's really what's going on. And Rodney's dead on. Yeah, socially or interpersonally, you mean, he's, he's usually wrong. Yeah, he, yeah he, he misses the whole point of so many issues. And with his own scientific com- and academic community, he's dead on. And they are all very jealous of him and they don't want to recognize his talent you know and that's one of my favorite lines from the episode Malcolm says you're smarter than I am and McKay goes I know (laughs) 
Yeah, and and Malcolm's character was not really what I expected it to be. I, I liked it, and I liked that scene. I like that he sort of faces up to the fact that he's basically just co-opted someone else's work and tweaked it a little to make himself feel better. Um, Had but, his life not been in jeopardy, it would have been very interesting to see how his reaction would have been. Yeah, I expected him to be more competent, frankly. I expected him to be more like Rodney's opposite number in the private sector. I was looking for a paper I published a little over two years ago, one that dealt with a matter bridge. Rodney, you have not published a paper in a very long time. You probably didn't even know it was my work. Oh, you're publishing under a nom de plume now? Okay, here's how I think it went down. You were working with the government. Someone there trusted you a lot and let you see something you weren't supposed to see. Or maybe you were sent something by accident. Who knows? You saw a paper about a matter bridge, a project that was shut down due to the adverse effects of exotic particles. You read it. You realized that if the bridge was used merely as a transfer of energy, say heat, there would be no exotic particle creation and thus no adverse effects. So you co-opted the science as your own, made a few changes to make yourself feel better, and got to work, dismissing the original author's warnings about the inherent instability of time-space bridges. How am I doing so far? That's preposterous. Dr. Tunney's been working on this for years. That was my work, Malcolm. I wrote that paper. Terrence, these people may be able to help us. Jennifer was right in a lot of ways. I think they were all really behaving like a room of sixth graders, you know? They're not cooperating. I can understand that everyone would would kind of be strutting their stuff, but Mm -hmm. also this... At the same time, I, I think if that were really to happen, the the situation that we that we saw in this episode, I really think they would all band band together from from Stephen Hawking all the way down, and try and figure out what the heck is going on. They wouldn't need a medical doctor to tell them to behave. I love Dave Foley's performance, and I'm a big Dave Foley fan. Actually, I never watched news radio, but I was a big fan of his on The Kids in the Hall. I've never heard of Kids in the Hall until a few weeks ago when you mentioned it, so this is all fresh to me. Kids in the Hall was the Canadian answer to Saturday Night Live, produced by Lauren Michaels. So yeah, I love Dave Foley in this role. Um, Bill Nye, I've I've got to... I guess watch the episode a few more times to to continue to get used to it. Well, Bill Nye, you know, is a comedian and a scientist at the same time, and and I, like I said, I spent years watching him, and it's exactly what I was expecting and hoping for. You know, his mannerisms, his behavior, you know, him talking about the Plutoids. Thanks to Tyson, Pluto is one of the Plutoids. It's cool, you know, and I'm just uh, it's science. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the things that this episode did that I thought we never really got for Daniel was to see Rodney's standing in, in academia now that he's basically left that world and gone and worked for the government and he's still working cutting edge, more cutting edge than anybody could possibly imagine but nobody knows about it so they, they view him as a complete failure. Daniel went through a lot of that same stuff, and we saw little pieces of it in episodes like season four's The Curse, where he goes yeah, home to to Chicago, Chicago. And, and his his old professor and mentor has passed away, so he he sees some of his former colleagues and, and people who were students at the same time as him. Um, but, but that's basically it. That's basically it. We never really got this kind of this depth of of seeing that that standing in the academic world. 
the only hint of that we got was in the feature film, you know? And that was basically it. His line, is there a lunch or something that everybody's going to? And that's it for him in the academic world. Then he moves into the private sector in Abydos and is, is gone. And nobody misses him, whereas Rodney was apparently one of the rising stars in his field. And then he's just gone. Yeah, that was one of the things that I wasn't expecting. Him to be acquainted with Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, Stephen Hawking. You know, I, I wouldn't have expected him to be that high. I always would have expected him to be a, a kind of like cl- a closet genius that basically the government seized when he was really young because that's basically what happened. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's one thing that I'm satisfied with in Brainstorm is that McKay is is vindicated. I mean, to a certain degree, at, at least Malcolm knows that he's out there and he's he's doing cutting edge stuff and he's not just uh, some petty upstart trying to take credit for everybody else's work. I was a little surprised that folks like Nye and and Tyson were willing to appear brainless and sitting at a desk while Rodney was pacing back and forth coming up with all the correct answers. That's one of the things that I was kind of surprised at, you know. All Nye does is is check Tony's math and that's about (laughs) about it for his contributions. I was expecting uh, when they were talking this episode being a brainstorm, I was expecting a lot more a lot more than that. Well, let's talk about the big elephant in the room, which is uh, McKay Keller Romance. This is a big ship episode, and it's really the first time uh, that Stargate has has shipped two main characters and done it really overtly. Mm-hmm. This has obviously been building up over the, over the course of the season. We saw in The Last Man, the season finale last year, we saw the alternate future where they got together and then, and then she dies. Um... But this has, you know, been building up, and, and in the shrine, he confesses his love to her. She basically echoes his words. She exactly apparently watched that video recording of him a lot of times. I'll say this for this relationship. It's about time that McKay had a serious adult relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not trying to say that I didn't care for Katie Brown. I thought she was great. I didn't care for Katie Brown. You know, she was this young girl, you know, really great and really cute and really funny and but keller seems much more hardcore in her field and like up there working with mckay i would expect him to go for someone like her Mm -hmm. rather than rather than katie where you get swept away by this by this younger woman uh so i'm satisfied that he's finally growing up a little bit more i think she's going to give him a stability that he needs uh she was she was pulling him around a little bit in in this episode talking about trying to be humble and are you going to behave like this the entire trip and he um he sat up and checked his behavior because he realizes how much he cares for this person and he doesn't want to lose her this is a very very good change for him and I think by the end of the series, it's about it's it's a good change, you know. It's a it's a welcome change. It's pushing him in a direction that he is he's never given any indication that he wants to go in terms of of humility and and sort of that that maturity in that area that that area of his relationships with other people. Um, from the first moment that we met Rodney in season five of SG One, and he had that relationship with Sam Carter. He's just sort of been that guy, and he's he's had that that really rude, really sort of objectifying view of of beautiful women. And because David Hewlett is not here to talk about it with us, I'll just repeat what what he said to us in in an interview recently, which is that Keller kind of snuck up on him because he he sort of viewed his relationship with Sam Carter as as um, he put her on a pedestal 
Mm-hmm. And uh, similar with Katie Brown, he sort of put her on a pedestal, and, and she was sort of the object of his longing um, from a distance for a long time. Uh, and he didn't see Keller coming, and he didn't see his, his feelings for her necessarily coming, so he didn't have time to sort of uh, put her up on a pedestal or or objectify her, and they just had this working professional relationship and, and sort of a growing friendship, and then it, it naturally became what what many friendships do, which is, I think, a, a really touching romance. Yeah, I think she's she's good for him. Yeah, it, I think I think so too, and I think it feels like it came from the right place. It came very natural. He didn't get struck by Keller. It it grew. It blossomed into something that's really natural and something that I'm looking forward to seeing. You know, as as the as the photography that has come out so far for future episodes can attest to. Yeah, this is romance in Stargate is not something that I want to see every single episode. I don't see romance playing a part on the show like it has in some of my favorite science fiction series like Babylon 5. Romance is is an important element in in terms of some of the characters. Um, watching Buffy right now, romance is, is significant between Buffy and Angel. Um, that's sort of not what Stargate is, but it's a welcome addition, I think, in, in small doses. As long as it's not overdone, exactly, yeah. As one fan quaintly put it, as the Stargate turns. <laughs> mm-hmm. The freeze lightning, I thought, was was cool. I thought it was a cool idea that resulted in, in some cool effects, like like the guy getting frozen and the doors getting getting shut and the, the telecommunications panel getting destroyed. Um, I thought mm-hmm. the, the visual effect and the, the sound effect of the lightning were really cool. I, I agree with you on those elements. It, the approach, though, was kind of out of left field. As, tr- as soon as they mentioned freeze lightning, and I was kind of thinking, oh, explosive tumors. You know, <laughs> like one of those where it's like so odd. Um, there, no matter there how effective were some, it is. Yeah, there were some liberties taken, I think, with with some of what was going on and that we somehow Malcolm has uh, the ability to create some sort of plasma energy force field around the building. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that Earth had this technology yet. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, and that his heat sink is only drawing energy from, from within this. And then, and then when the field starts to go down, it generates these huge storms right outside. I'm not sure how plausible some of that stuff is. Yeah, it felt to me like it was... Freeze Lightning, a Sci-Fi Channel original movie. You know, that's really what I thought of this. I, I was saying to myself, this doesn't really feel like Stargate. This is a little too out there in terms of plausibility. This is something more like the Sci-Fi Channel Saturday movie that I would expect, along with Frankenfish and Mansquito. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that it, it wasn't an element of the episode that I cared for. You know, as I, I know that Garrow has said in the past that Stargate episodes don't work without a certain amount of jeopardy, mm-hmm. which I guess is kind of true, but you know, we have to be careful about how hokey we make our jeopardy because a, a dude freezing while instantaneously while he's getting his um, his cocktail, you know, it's like what? You know, and, oh, and by the way, whatever happened to him? Did we find out whether he lived or died? No, I assumed he died on on impact, but apparently he didn't. No, he didn't. Half of himself was frozen. I'm not sure how he lived. Yeah, that you can't thaw someone who who's been frozen. They don't survive the thawing process. But I'm sure if we can generate plasma fields around the building, I'm sure we've got some kind of Asgard trick that'll solve that too. Yeah, it's very sci-fi, very imaginative. It's kind of not not the sort of typical thing that we've seen in mm-hmm. Stargate. 
I turned up my suspension of disbelief knob on, on those elements of the show. <laughs> but, you know, ironically, that's what bugs you, and what bugs me is Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson's behavior. The fact that they're behaving <laughs> like like a couple of high school jocks. You know, that's one of the questions that I'd love to ask Nye. You receive a script that has you in it, a caricature of yourself. You know, and you're playing yourself. Someone else is putting words into your mouth. Have you ever asked yourself, is this really how people see me? You know, is this I how they think, think I behave? Yeah, I don't think those roles were written for those guys. When we saw the casting sides for Brainstorm, those guys were... Uh, I think Ken and Steve or something like that. And I don't know if maybe those were placeholder names because they were trying to get these guys or if those roles were written and then they found out, well, we can get Bill Nye and what role can we give him? Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ken and Steve were really written to be just sort of petty jerks who had had a few too many drinks at the cocktail party. And I've got to give props to seeing Walter Harriman again. Yeah, that was a funny little scene. (laughs) Funny little cameo. So, what are your overall thoughts on Brainstorm? How are you going to grade this one? There was a lot about it that I liked, um, some about it that I didn't. Um, I'm going to have to give it a 6.5 or a 7 out of 10, though, because I'm, I'm really on the fence about this one. This seems like one of those episodes that you either really like or really hate, and I hope that the more times I watch it, the, the more I'm going to be able to appreciate it for what it is, but the first time I saw it, I I really disliked it. Yeah. This, this is one of my least favorite episodes in a long time. And it did get better the second time I saw it. And I was yeah. able to kind of watch it for what it is. And to see it as a, as a Rodney episode and, a, and a, both Rodney's background and where he is going moving forward. But yeah, I've, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. I think there are certainly aspects of the episode that, it, that you can either love or hate. Um, which is what I did. Listener mail. In last week's listener question, we asked you what you thought of romance in your Stargate. Of course, we got uh, probably more response to this question than than any question in the last 19 episodes of the podcast. (laughs) Far and away. I think it's safe to say it's what a lot of people are interested in, or at least a vocal group of people are interested in. Yeah, and those who are not interested in it are vocal about the fact that they they don't want it in the show, which I think is very interesting. Uh, we asked what's your, what's your favorite pairing, relationship pairing. We got a lot of comments on this relationship or that relationship from, from Atlantis and from SG-1, and we want to acknowledge all those and say thanks to everybody for, for writing and posting uh, we only have time to read a few comments, so the ones I picked are, are kind of more general about about romance and shipping in general on the show. So, David, who's our first writer? Mary is our first writer. I think Stargate has had its hits and misses with romance. Some of the relationships, like Shepard and Weir and Jack and Sam, did well when they were kept to hints and subtext, but floundered if brought into the forefront because they took over the show. Others, though, like Daniel and Vala and McKay and Keller, seem to give the show depth without changing its focus. You know, they they mentioned some of these relationships in here, like Shepard and, and Weir, and unless you were combing the show, I don't think you'd see them. They were implied. I, I think when I think Shepard and Weir, I think about the hug when he comes back. Was that end of season one? First of season yeah, two? Yeah, no, first of season two. First it's just of a season hug. Two. And then I think of, of obviously the big kiss when they're both possessed by alien entities in the long mm-hmm. goodbye. Um, but other than that, I 
I'm, I know we're going to get in trouble for, for talking specifically about these relationship pairings, but I've never seen Shepard and Weir. I, and I've never seen Ronan and Beckett, you know, and they hugged. Ronan and Beckett? They hugged in um, Satita. Is there a shipper group for them? I'm sure there is. Anytime anyone seems to make physical contact, it's up. Yeah, my favorite ship pairing on GateWorld Forum has always been Beckett Chair. Jeez. Oh, the uh, ancient yes. control chair that he gets cozy with. Oh, man. <laughs> Next. Sherlock Gnomes writes about the McKay-Keller relationship in Atlantis. He says, with the introduction of a romantic arc between two regulars, the show has been taken into a different direction, and it's given it an entirely different feel. It was primarily a show about team and friendship, but that seems to have taken a back seat this season. Shipping should stay in the realms of fan fiction. Shows of a general nature shouldn't be used to act out fan fiction. It potentially alienates too many viewers. Wildstar073 writes... Romance as a plot device has its place in any dramatic fiction, including Stargate. It can be a powerful emotional motivation which drives characters to extreme choices which they may not otherwise make. If there was no romance in Stargate, we would have missed out on so many wonderful character moments like just about everything between Daniel and Vala. Also, episodes like SG-1's Divide and Conquer in which O'Neill and Carter are tested by the Tok'ra truth device and eventually forced to reveal their feelings for each other would never have been made. B says, I don't really want to say what I think about McKellar because you're going to have David Hewlett on and I wouldn't want to cause any grief by saying how much that is wrong. But in general, they should keep overt ships out of the show. Little hints and subtle insinuations can let us fans ship whoever we want in the privacy of our own minds and fanfic. Mac Jackson says, when done right and not heavy-handed, it can only add to the depth of the characters and thereby the series. But now that we have years of unfulfilled romance between the two, it has been the passion and bane of the audience waiting for that long overdue confirmation. Uh, I think the confirmation was there in season four. Yeah, they're they're looking for uh, more than confirmation, I think. Sam Jack shippers are, are looking for confirmation. A baby? That, they're looking for confirmation that Sam and Jack are now in a relationship. Uh, that they are significant others that they that they love each other well i think it's obvious that they love each other but i don't know i'm 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 tammy's gonna kill me <laughs> i i don't see uh much more confirmation than we've got coming in any future movies what i appreciated about the sam jack relationship in sg1 was just what mac jackson says the fact that uh if you were looking for it you could find it but it it was very subtle in in a lot of cases and you know i just said in our discussion of brainstorm that uh, i think that that the mckay keller romance is is good for him and and it makes for an interesting plot point because the writers have never done uh overt shipping with main characters before but overall i would say that the way that the sam jack relationship was handled is is how i prefer romance to be done on stargate which is kind of bubbling under the surface and never really that overt. And we have a couple of listener voicemails this week. Let's listen to those. Hi, I'm Sarah from Ohio. Lately, the episodes of Stargate has, haven't been interesting for me, but this past week episode of Brainstorm really was interesting because you got to see McKay and Keller have complete 
slightly different characteristics of what they usually have. Usually McKay, when he's drawn Shepard, is more scaredy cat, hiding in the shadows, only trying to emerge into more intellectually. But he became more like Shepard when he found out Keller was locked in that room and he broke out the axe and saved her. That's something more Shepardistic than a McKayistic. And Keller just taking charge and saying, I'll go call on the cell phone and yelling at all the nerds to hurry up and make out something to work. You usually used to seeing her tied up, stranded in the woods. She gets so used to them that they kind of get a little bit boring, and it's a little better just to see them do something more adventurous. It brings more depth to the character. Hi, my name is Roger. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Just wanted to say how disappointed I am with sci-fi for not sticking with Stargate Atlantis. Even my wife watches Stargate Atlantis. We watch it every week. Um, can't wait for it to come on. We know that Fox likes to cancel very popular shows when they're in the middle of their prime or just getting started, uh, Firefly being a great example. But sci-fi has always been known to hold on to their shows and you know keep them going as long as they were making the money. I don't know what has happened, whether management has changed, people have gotten greedy or what, but it's very sad that they are doing this because Stargate Atlantis is one of the few good sci-fi shows still out there. And turning it into movies does nothing for those of us that like to watch shows every week. Thanks to Sarah and Roger for calling in, and for everyone who posted on our listener question this week. The discussion that I've been yearning to have for a long time is coming up next week, and I hope you tune in for that, because it's going to get hot in here. I hope so. Let's be controversial. Let's be controversial. Let's get people to hate us. That's cool. It's cool. It's science. I don't want to be hated. You can be (laughs) hated. We'll play good cop, bad cop. You know, I think generally speaking, I am usually bad cop on this show. I'm the outspoken, bitchy, bad cop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you are kind of bitchy. So, next week we're talking about fan entitlement. What what do fans have the right to want or to expect from the show, or from the, the writers and producers, or from cast members? I know some people, one who was a dear friend of mine for a very long time, who believe that if the show doesn't go in the direction that she wants, or he wants, they stop watching. Because the show has taken a direction that they don't like and that they don't want. You know, and I can kind of understand that if, like, a show's dynamic overall, like, its colors change. Mm-hmm. Like, from season 8 to 9, for instance, of SG-1. True. But when particular plot points don't go the direction that they want, they stop watching the show and begrudge it. That's kind of, like, what I'm thinking about when we go towards this question. And the question is... This week's listener question is, as a fan of Stargate... What, if anything, do you believe you are entitled to from the show's writers, producers, and cast? Do they owe us anything? What would you like to put in a fan's Bill of Rights? And I really hope that fans speak out wholeheartedly about this one. Not just the people who say that that's absurd, they don't owe us anything. Um, But the ones who really feel that they owe us something, I hope you speak out too, because I really want to hear your thoughts and and smash them to pieces. No, not, not true, not true. Well, I really hope that this this conversation is not an either-or. I don't think this is a black-and-white issue. Either either yeah. fans are owed nothing or they're owed the world. Um, I, I'm hoping that we can 
sort of explore the shades of gray in there. Yeah, I completely and agree. Obviously, we're talking primarily about Stargate, but but this sort of applies to to other shows and to to fandom in general. Mostly sci-fi shows. Mostly shows where the fan base is very passionate and they have an intimate relationship with their show. You know, that doesn't normally happen with doctors and lawyers shows and, and the likes of that. You know, it happens more like with the X-Files with the hardcore fans or the Star Trek fans or the Firefly fans, you know, and definitely Stargate fans. Well, that's coming up next week in our December 2nd installment of the podcast, Fan Entitlement. And then we're back to talking about Infection the next week. That'll be our December 9th podcast. The episode airs on Friday, December 5th, after the Thanksgiving holiday. And then December 16th, we'll talk about Identity, the last new episode of 2008. Thanks for joining us once again for this week's podcast. Today, David and I talked about Brainstorm, last week's episode of Stargate Atlantis, and gave you a preview of this week's upcoming interview with actor Peter Fleming. For links to everything we talked about today, head to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 20, Show Notes. We want to hear your feedback. Give us your answer to this week's listener question on fan entitlement. We want to use as many comments as we can in our discussion next week. Call the hotline at 616-712-1647 or post on the podcast feedback thread at GateWorld Forum. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. And I'm going on vacation. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. Ha, ha, ha.